Welcome to the World Nomads podcast, delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveler. Hey, it's Kim and Phil with this week's episode of the World Nomads podcast in which, Phil, strap yourself in, we're heading to Malaysia. <laughs> Look, I love Malaysia. It's a real melting pot of cultures and... Uh, which also makes it the perfect foodie destination, my favourite food, Malaysian food. Uh, Malays make up approximately half of the population. Chinese people make up around a quarter, and there's also a very substantial Indian community there. Uh, It has a mix of really cool modern architecture alongside the colonial buildings. And just north of Malaysian Borneo is one of the world's best dive spots. Plus, much of Malaysia is undeveloped allowing wildlife to roam freely. There are plenty of beaches, I can attest to that. I've been on some crackers up there and challenging hikes, all of which make it a perfect destination uh, for the adventurous traveller who is a world nomad, Kim. Yes, well, you've, as you said, you've been. I've only been to the island of Langkawi as part of a visit to Thailand. But again, Phil, what happens when we do these podcasts? Want to go back. <laughs> goes straight on the list. In this episode, we'll chat with Tamara, who trekked Borneo's Headhunters Trail to the Pinnacles, which she describes as a forest of limestone shards that are around 147 foot tall, or uh, 45 metres. Um, fellow world nomad Isaac Entry joins us. We're going to hear about his ancestral link to those Borneo headhunters. <laughs> that was a poison dart. There you go. <laughs> Don't worry, we do it to him. Yeah. And the food wars between Malaysia, Singapore and Indonesia. Plus, Tom from Adventuring You takes us away from Borneo and on to mainland Malaysia. Uh, first up though, Sam, he went on a guided tailor-made trek, which is really, like, sounds like, oh, yeah. guided? Nah, off the beaten track. Oh, off the beaten track to the top of Mount Latung, um, Latung perhaps the highest peak of the Malau Basin in Malaysian Borneo. I was I was in Borneo on a sixteen day trip around around Malaysian Borneo. I found myself in the rainforest for about I don't know maybe ten days in total. I went to Dunham Valley first, which is close to Malau Basin but more accessible. Dunham Valley is more of a research centre where they it's more like conservation research, um, and I followed scientists around, saw how they mapped the forest there, got to do lots of fun hikes, canopy walks. Partway through my time in the jungle, they then told me we were going on a trip to Malio Basin. At the time, I had no idea because uh, I wasn't really given much of a schedule, and being Malaysia, things always change at the last minute. If there's a storm the night before and the roads get flooded, then access is a bit more limited and maybe a tree falls down and they have to physically go there with chainsaws and cut it to move it out the road. And when you're travelling two hours along these logging roads, the last thing you want is to be stranded somewhere. So I think they sort of kept it a bit of a secret just in case the plans fell through. Um, The first day we drove along in a 4 by 4 along these, these logging roads I was sat in the back in the open air part um, and it really gave you a chance to see the jungle and, and actually get to feel it and you can, you can smell it, you can hear it, you can almost taste it because you're not close to it as you're driving along. In the article you wrote for us, there are some great pictures and the, and the rainforest looks very dense. Can you describe mm-hmm. for somebody that hasn't experienced that what, what it smelt like, what it felt like? I would imagine quite humid. Um, the best way I can describe it, would be, it's like standing in a steam room. 
the air's heavy with the humidity. You have a sort of sweet smell all the time from all the plants and the flowers. There's a constant noise. It's never silent. The best way I can describe the sound, it's, it's, it's a high-pitched sound. It's monotonous, just constantly in the background, which I think is from the cicadas. You have the birds up in the trees. They're making different sounds as well. Some are whistling, some are sort of honking, some make hooting noises. Whenever you walk in, every step, it, it's like you're walking on the moon. Every step's a hard one because you're constantly fighting the heat, the humidity. Everything's thick, everything's dense. It's just so difficult to, to, to move. Walking one kilometre in the jungle is probably like walking 10 kilometres out, out, out on a road somewhere. With, with all that you've described, you couldn't be further away from the UK. I mean, you don't have rainforests. You don't have that kind of level of humidity. Was it the first time you'd found yourself in a jungle, feeling, feeling that, being exposed to that? It was. It was the first time I'd ever been out of Europe when I went to uh, Borneo. And then suddenly I found myself in, in, in somewhere where it's 35 degrees in the day, 100% humidity, so it, it was it was strange to start off with and I couldn't sleep on the night because it was just so hot. You're constantly in a pool of sweat. Dehydration became a problem because I wasn't used to drinking litres after litre of water back at home. And then suddenly in, in this harsh environment that if you're not careful, you run the risk of, of falling ill quite quickly. How would you book a trip? And what would you take? If you wanted to visit Malio Basin, the only way that, that you can go is by booking a tour. Usually a trip would consist of a three to five day expedition. Either you'd start from the capital Kinabalu, and then you'd drive about six hours or so south and into the heart of Borneo to reach Malio Basin. Others start from the east coast, which then follows a route in from the east. Different tours offer different things. Malio Basin, they've got several waterfalls. They've got Sabah's longest river. So there's quite a few activities going on other than searching for wildlife and canopy walks and jungly things. There are a few things to be aware of, though. Certain tour companies require a fitness certificate and your medical insurance needs to cover helicopter evacuation because if something happens out there in the middle of the jungle, you're pretty much screwed. And what to pack? When I went, I have to admit I was a little bit naive. First time in the jungle, so I just went there in the normal clothes that I would if I was hiking in the UK, which was a, which was a big mistake. <laughs> just, just a little. <laughs> <laughs> but if I were to do it again, the number one thing I'd bring is quick drying clothes. At seven, seven o'clock in the morning and you're in the jungle, I was dripping from head to toe in sweat and you're soaking wet all day long. Another thing that's essential is a waterproof bag. These are usually quite easy to get in, in Sabah. Because when people go island hopping in Kotakinabalu, they take the they they take the waterproof bags to keep the stuff in, the cameras, the electronics, the phones. When when you're faced with a tropical shower, a, a downpour, a thunderstorm, it seems as if a whole month's worth of rain falls from the sky in the space of five minutes. 
since you've been to Malaysia, you have become a marathon runner. You've gone to Portugal, which is where we're chatting to you from, uh, to take part in a run there. Are you going to use your running, as a lot of people do, um, as a basis for travel around the world, Sam? I think I've run marathons in about six different countries. Because we work from our laptops, we have the freedom to work whatever we want in the world. And I use the running as a as a bit of a guideline of where to of where to go. Now, Phil, I did promise you that it's off the beaten track. Can yep. you expand on the importance of travel insurance when you are hiking in those spots that Sam did that are inaccessible if you're injured, other than by chopper to get you out? Look, one of the uh, questions we're often asked is, "Will World Nomads send a chopper to get me?" No, we don't. We don't have World Nomads branded choppers. We rely on the normal rescue services, and then. Um, you know, we'll sort of pick up the cost from that generally. So if you are stuck there in a, you know, inaccessible place such as that and you need rescuing, and it would have to be, you know, you can't just get a lift out. It would absolutely have to be an emergency. Uh, a rescue service that comes and gets you, the cost of that is very, very likely to be covered by your World Nomads policy. Now, there's lots of ins and outs around that, so don't take that as blanket coverage. Yeah. But generally, if a, you know, a a mandatory rescue from somewhere like that by chopper, then you're going to be able to put in a claim with World Nomads. Well, now that we've spoken travel insurance, you know that at the end we will have to play our disclaimer. I want to play it during travel news as well, so that will do for two. So tune in a bit... (laughs) Very soon we'll be playing our disclaimer. Yeah, and look, don't get bored by it or be bored by the idea of it. It's a cracker. You know, the World Nomads office uh, headquarters here in Sydney, we've got a, you know, we've got a bit of wide range of people from all over the globe as well. On our team, working with Kim and I, is a fellow from Malaysia background. You're Australian now though, aren't you, Isaac Entry? I am. I am a new Australian, but I have to say... Borneo in the house. (laughs) (laughs) I should say Borneo in the longhouse. Yes. Well, look, we've had conversations about your family background and you come from a pretty fascinating part of Malaysia. Um, Yeah, look, my dad's um, people, my people, my people um, come from Borneo and we're we're, we're from the Iban tribe, um, from, from the jungles of Borneo. And have you been back? You've been back to visit, you know, where the family came from originally yes uh so i i grew up there um sort of from the ages of i think one to maybe four or five um yeah. my dad very different childhood to mine he grew up in um a traditional longhouse it's essentially a very long house which houses anywhere from 30 up to 150 families um who each have a room um and there's a sort of long common corridor that that connects a house um it's 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 a pretty amazing structure 150 families did you grow up in this from one to four in that's in that setup no my my dad grew up in one of those houses um by the time i i was a young boy those sorts of houses were you know people were moving away from from the villages you you feel comfortable saying as much as you like but let's talk about you know your ancestors there's a pretty interesting history there, isn't there? Yeah. So the look, the Ibans were um, probably the most feared warrior tribe on, on the island of Borneo, um, um, known for headhunting and um, a little bit of cannibalism on the side. 
So just remember, people, when you're contacting yeah. World Nomads content team, don't mess with Isaac. <laughs> <laughs> who, who, ironically, you are the most placid person that I've met in a long time that comes to <laughs> Maybe we haven't been pushing the right buttons yet. <laughs> yeah, look, there's, there's, there's probably a cave story um, that maybe taps into the, the, the warrior gene in me that I could tell you, Kim. But, I, yeah, I am a pretty laid-back guy. Let's move yeah. on. Okay. <laughs> because we want to talk about warring of a different type, all right? Now we're yeah. talking about food wars. There's a lot of contention in the region about who owns particular dishes. Yeah, so food is a source of national pride and delight. Um, but you know, as as you know, food is is it's never just about food. It's about you know, it's about a cultural identity. It's about I, I think particularly for Malaysians, um, when you're talking to someone from the Western world, it's hard for them to place Malaysia until you give them a kind of until you describe it in relation to where something else is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You can go, oh, it's just, it, you know, it's the peninsula north of Singapore or it's, you know, it's just south of Thailand. Um, and I think we have a kind of um, national identity crisis that manifests itself when it comes to conversations around food. So we're very protective over what we think are dishes that, that we came up with. When in essence, as, as a Malaysian, you know, it, it doesn't really matter, does it? Yes, it does, does it? Does. You traitor. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just, just give me my laksa. I'm happy. You know, you call it Malaysian laksa, Singaporean laksa. Happy. I'm happy. Oh, so go on. So, so we've got laksa. What, what else have we got there? So um, we've had, I guess, these food wars over um, very famous chili crab dish. Have, have you guys have had chili crabs? I have. I have, yes. You know, and it's, to, to my mind, I, I think it's Singaporean more than Malaysian, but a while back. I think Malaysia claimed, claimed it as a Malaysian dish, um, which upset the Singaporeans. Um, I know between Indonesia and Singapore, there was um, a similar issue around the origins of nasi goreng, which is fried rice. If you spoke to a food historian and tried to trace the origins of fried rice, you know, it would probably go back to China. Um, and then more recently, Singapore, I think, tried to get UNESCO listing for um, street food, claiming that, you know, it's, it's um, uniquely Singaporean. And of course, Malaysians got upset. Um, you know, you get street food in Thailand, you get street food in Indonesia. The most recent case is a food war over where chendol, which is a shaved ice <gasps> dessert, oh. comes from. Yes. I so love it sounds like you know what I'm talking oh, about. Oh, I love Chendo. All right, look, just for the uninitiated, because I've just realised we've, we've been speaking, well, you need to describe what a Chendo is. And okay. then we better, we better talk about what a Laksa is as well, just for people who don't know. So Chendo is a bowl of shaved ice. Um, it's topped with, um, like you say, Phil, a bit of condensed milk, some syrup. Um, it can have red beans, peanuts, a um, bit of corn, um, and this kind of starchy green things that look like little noodles or boogers. Yep. Depending on <laughs> how old you are. A five-year-old might look at that and go, oh, that's a bowl full of boogers. Yep. Um, yeah. And, <laughs> and uh, it also can have palm sugar. 
And on a very steamy, humid, tropical day... It is to die for. It is the bee's knees, isn't it? It is to die for, yeah. So on a steamy, tropical day, would you have a luxa? Explain what that is. So every day is a steamy, tropical day in Malaysia. (laughs) And... Every day is a laksa day. (laughs) (laughs) So you can chase the laksa with a chendol. That would be my recommendation. How far does this culinary war extend? Like to what lengths do you go to prove that something belongs to Malaysia? I'm not sure to what lengths you can go to prove um, that you own a dish if if, if a nation can own a dish. I I do know that, you know, it's um, resulted in demonstrations outside of embassies, um, there were reports of um, feces um, being thrown at, at a Malaysian embassy in Indonesia. Um, it gets it gets it gets pretty serious, guys. But he's taking it seriously. Yeah. <laughs> what do we want, Nasi Lemak? When do we want it? Now. <laughs> <laughs> so, what made you become an Australian then, with this fabulous heritage? You know, it's. I think, like all good stories, it starts with. A woman. <laughs> I, I met. I met my Sheila, and um, <laughs> decided <laughs> to become Australian. But yeah, really, I guess if you want it to be corny, for love. And look, we're we're a good melting pot here as well. You know, yeah. multicultural society. Do you still yeah. maintain some of that? You know, Malaysian heritage in in your everyday life life now? Uh, look, it's definitely something I am mindful of, especially with you know, I have a a five-year-old daughter, and I think it's important to share with her some some aspects of my cultural heritage. So I, I try to speak to her in Malay. Um, through food, I explain things to her through food, you know, dishes, recipes that my grandmother made, um, recipes that my dad makes. We're about to start her to start teaching her to eat with her fingers, which is, um, you know, what you typically, typically do in Borneo. Will you, though, no. t- touch on the headhunting part of things yeah look i think a trip back to borneo is due sometime soon i you know i still have family members that live in, in a long house that still farm live off the land um and would have it no other way they love where they are they love their slice of the world so yeah this is definitely part of my cultural heritage that i'd like to share with ashley this year Beautiful. And if anyone has spent any time in KL, they may, may have come across you on stage. <laughs> back, back in the day. <laughs> you have a beautiful singing voice. Thanks, Kim. I would dearly love to put a link to No Woman, No Cry in show notes. <laughs> we can't do that to him, though. No, we can't. But no. he does have a gorgeous blues voice. And maybe he said one day he might return to it once his daughter's older. Well, that would have to be during a live podcast, I think. I think so, too. Uh, well, he, he owes get us him that. To, he owes us that one. Yeah. Now, what's travel news? In travel news, Kim, we've chatted in previous episodes about the impact of over-tourism and what that can do to destinations. Not just the crowding and too many people on it, you know, being a bit obvious, but the environmental damage. So I'm a bit conflicted by these reports that Bali, that's in Indonesia, of course, New Zealand and Japan are all imposing tourist taxes on visitors. Every dollar's crucial when you're, you know, travelling on a tight budget. Every dollar you spend on a tax is a dollar you're not spending travelling. But if you're going to have to hand over 10 US dollars to enter Bali, 35 New Zealand, which is about 24 US dollars, to get into New Zealand, and a thousand yen or about nine US dollars on departing Japan. What do you think? Good idea or bad? Oh, it doesn't. Like, seriously, nine US dollars on top of what you've paid for the trip? 
I don't have a problem with it. Yeah, I'd like to see it be going into specific projects. I'd like it to be yeah, transparent yeah, rather point. than just going into general revenue. Yeah. Have you visited the Trevi Fountain in Rome and did no. you throw the three coins in the fountain? No. It's a very popular thing to do amongst visitors and around about $2 million worth of coins get tossed into the fountain every year. $2 million. How many gets? How much gets stolen? Well, well, I know you're not allowed in. The, if you jump in, you'll get pulled up by the Carabinieri straight away if okay. you jump into the fountain. Uh, but all this money, it sparked a bit of a controversy between the Catholic Church and the Mayor of Rome. Uh, up until now, all of the $2 million has gone through a church charity to help the homeless people in Rome. But now the Mayor wants about a third of it to go into, you guessed it, upkeep and maintenance of cultural projects. It's, instead of a tourist tax, I just want to take it, take it out of the fountain. All the mayor's done is gone. Now, where can we get some money from? Yeah. Oh, the fountain. The fountain. We'll have some of that. <laughs> we'll have some of Your that. Your holiness, thank you very much. <laughs> Now, tell me, do you ever have one of those moments where something in your everyday life reminds you of another place that, you, that you've travelled, a little flashback? I get it on spring mornings when the air is a certain temperature and the light's a certain colour, and it reminds me of Paris. Right, nice. There is a particular flower that I do smell that reminds me of Hawaii. Oh. And another thing, have you noticed they never remind you of a place like Scunthorpe? It's always <laughs> Paris or Hawaii, all right? Well, here's a way to recreate one of those essential travel experiences. United Airlines has released a book of recipes for its in-flight meals. <laughs> I love that idea. Are you kidding me? I do like that idea. Oh, look, Come you know, on, I'm not sure, no, I'm not sure I'd want to cook indeterminate grey meat on a bed of soggy mash something. Now, come on, mate, I know you've travelled first class. <laughs> I have never travelled first class. Okay, business class. I've done business and that was pretty good. I don't mind, I look, I, don't, I think it's part of the, tr- the treat, I don't mind it. Uh, one of the things we cover in our insurance policies at World Nomads is lost belongings. There are limits on the value of the things that we cover, so check your policy wording. Uh, but I can tell you none of our policies would have covered the one-carat family heirloom diamond engagement ring a Charlotte couple lost in Costa Rica uh, recently. It's a long story about how it was lost in the sand, but essentially the ring was taken off uh, in December 11 when they were putting on sunscreen and then it got lost in the sand. Obviously they searched very hard for it, uh, but to no avail, and it was... No chance of making an insurance claim because they hadn't even registered it as uh, an item and they hadn't even had it valued, so they were totally gone. But guess what? A local using a metal detector found it a month later in late January and he's returned it to them. How lucky is that? Well, how did he return it to well, them? Well, he's that's it. he lives in Costa Rica. He's an expat and he's got the – he was a former Navy SEAL underwater detectives explosive So he knew thing. whose ring it was? Uh, yes, because they posted something on Facebook saying oh, we lost fabulous. this ring. But, like, they'd given up, you know, and the tides had been in and out yeah. so many times over a month. But they got it back. What a great story. And because I've, you know, spoken about insurance coverage, we now have to play this. Yeah, here at World Nomads, the information we provide about travel insurance, it is brief, I can't deny. Doesn't take into account your personal needs and doesn't include all terms or conditions. You see or limitations, exclusions, and termination provisions of the travel insurance plan described. Now listen, coverage may not be available for residents of all countries, states, or provinces. Carefully read the policy available at World Nomads. For full description of coverage, it's time to check it out. Let's go. 
Uh, that is travel news for this week, Kim. Oh, that was sensational. I love that one. Tom, he runs a travel blog, Adventure In You, and shares with us what he loves about Malaysia. Uh, I just think it has a mix of, of different you know, different things. If you're, if you're in Penang, there's obviously the street art, which is really unique. And then you can try all the different foods and get a really sort of street feel there. And then what we did is we crossed the country from Penang all the way across the other side and went to Brinfin Island. So this is quickly, we jumped off the mainland. But then when we came back on the mainland, we went to the uh, Cameron Highlands, did a bunch of trekking around there. And that trekking experience was amazing. There's some really good hikes around that area. And then again, from there, we went down and then went down into KL. And then obviously you've got the cities. And then we ventured to some sort of small villages around there. So I think the mainland, it just, it just has, it just has a bit of everything again. I mean, like a lot of countries in Asia, you've got the mountains where you can do some great hiking and some great trails, but then you have, you know, crazy city life as well. You know, city like Bangkok and KL. Um, so you just got a bit of everything. For, for me, I really liked Penang. It has the street art. It has the, um, like. So the street art's in Georgetown, for those who don't know, and you can walk around there and take photos with it. And you, the, the way all the graffiti in the street art is you can pose inside the photo, so that's pretty cool. That's like a common thing that a lot of people do. And, and yeah, it has the hills. You can go to Penang Hill. It has the street art. It has nice beaches or a few sort of beaches you can go to. So it has a mix of everything. And then if you do like hiking, you can just take a bus from Penang into the Cameron Highlands. I'm not sure on the duration of the best. I uh, can't remember off the top of my head. It's, it's a good couple of hours. And then, yeah, there's a few trails. You can spend a good, good two, three days there sort of hiking around the trail, which is quite fun. I don't associate street art and uh, Malaysia together. The two, the two just don't seem to go together. Yeah, I, 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 had no about, I had no idea about it when I first went because I'm, I'm the sort of traveller that I, I go and then I mix with the locals and I just find experiences on the move. Um, I'm Ironically, we run a travel blog, but my partner does all, you know, she's the main content writer and research. I deal with the business side of it. I'm not, I don't do a lot of research beforehand. I like to venture into places, connect with people and then ask. So when I got to Penang, I knew it had a little bit of that scene. Um, but when our local friend walked us around, I was, yeah, I was stunned. It's really cool. You can take lots of, lots of photos where, like I said, and then there's even, uh, off the top of my head, I can't remember, but there is a, like a 3D graffiti museum as well where you can go in and again take photos with these cool arts like prints on the wall i remember taking a spider-man photo so there's this huge uh wall that's being like painted and it and if you lie on the wall and take a photo it it looks like you're climbing up the side of a side of a house with spider-man <laughs> spider-man so it's like this this funny stuff in, in penang but again the culture of it it's, it's just it's really cool it's really unique I, th- I think it's Penang that's kind of like the hipster destination for Malaysians. I think there's a very large sort of uh, artistic community there. I think that's why that's there. It's uh, yeah. you know, and it's a good and it's a good mix as well. You know, Georgetown is old sort of colonial look, and then you know you've got this new vibrant culture there. Yeah, so I think people are really drawn to it because, like, if you like islands and you want a beach holiday, then that's great because you can go to Perentian Islands. You can head there and that's just stunning. Like some of the most clear water I think to this day that I've ever seen and the beaches and everything. Uh, you can go diving there, snorkeling. I did the best snorkeling in my life in, in those islands where you can 
even if you're not a great swimmer, you can just go snorkeling and see these giant, giant turtles under the water. You can swim with them. It's incredible. Um, and you can just have this like really nice beach holiday, do diving, all this type of things. And then a quick boat onto the mainland and you could be hiking up in the Cameron Highlands. So it has really diverse and, and, it, and it's quite all close together. So one of my favorite countries is Indonesia, but to get to all the different places in Indonesia, you have to take big, you know, big trips. You have yep. to take a quick flight or long buses. But in Malaysia, you can sort of get on a couple of hours and be in this new location, which I think is really cool. Have you ever done uh, East Coast of Malaysia as well? Uh, I haven't done much of the East Coast, no, unfortunately. I do actually want to go back because, like I said, we're currently in Thailand. Right. And we're actually planning to go back to Malaysia and experience, experience some. Like I said, I did the um, Thuringian Islands, but I haven't ventured down the whole East. Yeah, well, I did that a long time ago, um, and it's really different to the West Coast. I mean, it's much less uh, developed uh, for tourism, um, and it's you know really has a genuine, authentic feel about it. Um, and this was twenty something years ago. I did this, but uh, we were trying to catch a bus and um, out of Johor Bahru, and we missed the bus, and so we thought we'd try and catch up with the bus, and we hired a taxi there were four of us and we hired a taxi to take us to the next town and then we got actually this is better <laughs> so between the four of us we managed to uh cover 300 kilometers with three taxis where they, you know one to take us to one town drop us off with another taxi he'd take us to another one so mm. it was quite an amazing experience doing that as well um, there was, uh, you know, a, a turtle colony there and a turtle rescue operation was going there. And it was really a very laid-back, different feel from the West Coast. Nothing wrong with the West Coast, as you say, it's really fantastic, but it was just this really different feel on the East. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of places in Malaysia that if you just venture off, like, the beaten path, if you go off the normal path, you can quickly get into areas that have zero sort of touristic feel and very local, which I, which I think is awesome. Yep, and totally appeals, Tom, to the adventurous independent traveller. Now, Tamara Tyson is a freelance journalist and photographer. She's worked around the world for newspapers, magazines, and she's also written guidebooks. She trekked the Headhunters Trail in Malaysian Borneo and was keen to know, well, I was, because she actually knows where she got her sense of adventure from. I used to read my dad's National Geographic magazines and I'm from Tassie, I'm an islander, so I've got this thing that I called Ilophile, although it wasn't really me that coined the expression. It was uh, a writer, Lawrence Durrell, who lived in the Greek islands, and a great writer, Lawrence Durrell, and he coined that expression, Ilophile. So I am an Ilophile, being from Tasmania, I seem to have this natural magnetism towards other particularly wild islands. So Borneo had played on my imagination for years and when I finally got there, I loved it. I loved the, the forests, the, the amazing flora and fauna. So I pitched the book idea as a guidebook to the Brat Travel Guides in England and they took me up on that. So I began to write the Brat Travel Guide to Borneo, which uh, took off in about 2007 or 8 was the first edition and it will go into fourth edition at the beginning of next year. So that's how I ventured into headhunting territory and keep going back to it in a big way. At World Nomads, we're all about off the beaten track and you've written an article, Trekking Borneo's Headhunters Trail for us. Is it off the beaten track, Tamara? 
Look, off the beaten track these days, given compared to the travel riders of the 80s and 90s and even Redmond O'Hanlon, the famous uh, English writer who wrote into the heart of Borneo in the late 80s, it's never going to be, unfortunately, sadly, one can get very nostalgic and probably with reason going to be quite as off the beaten track as in those days. It's just a reality of our hyped up and super age of travel we live in. But it's still relatively to many things off the beaten track. One, uh, the Gunamulu National Park, where this climb that I did, the Penicus climb, is based, is about 180 or 150 kilometres inland from the coast, from the South China morning, uh, the South China Sea coast of Sarawak. So first of all, you had to get a smallish plane, not a completely light plane, but enough to be quite thrilling inland. And that's quite a quick trip, given it's only 170 k's inland, about a 20-minute trip, and you're already arriving in this huge valley surrounded by the massive cave system, which is the Gunamuli National Park. Once you're at the park headquarters, you pretty much have to spend a night there and head off on an upriver trip which are thrilling trips in Borneo. They're my absolute favourite means of travel on a long boat with these expert boatmen from the different tribes of Borneo. So that's a couple of hours upriver. And then you have to walk in nine kilometres inland to what's known as Camp 5. And from there, you have to walk the famous Pinnacles climb. So to me, that's fairly off the beaten track. The climbing that you did and how treacherous it looked, you wouldn't want to be doing that sort of stuff without a guide. No, and thankfully, the climb is actually the most treacherous thing about the trail these days and not the actual guys who are doing it with all the Berowans and the Kayan people. They were some of the most vicious headhunters in Borneo's history. So the, the actual trek is definitely treacherous and thrilling enough as it is. The Pinnacles climb is treacherous because it's basically limestone pillars I compare them to daggers everywhere I looked I seem to be looking to a thousand sharp daggers waiting to catch me uh, and uh, spear me through they because it's a lot of the climb is through a mossy wet uh, sub, uh, tropical rainforest environment, these bits of limestone turn into something far more dangerous. I mean, they're dangerous enough as, as it is because they're so incredibly dagger sharp. But add moisture and humidity and slipperiness to the equation and we've got a, quite something else. So it was a very incredibly hard climb. It wasn't quite as hard as one Singaporean woman painted it to be the night before the climb. Uh, she had us all there on the edge of our seats and I actually was going to throw in the towel quite stupidly just based on the horror stories told by this Singaporean climber who ironically didn't get to the end. I have to say I was smugly satisfied. I thought, well, that's her just desserts. Well, you mentioned the, the cave system, and in your article there's a fabulous photo of Clearwater Cave. Um, can you tell us about that? It's, it's Asia's longest? That's about 170 kilometres in length, absolutely the longest uh, cave in Asia. 
that's part of an incredible cave system which was discovered in the 1970s by both a team from the Royal Geographic Society in the UK together with the local tribes. They're called the Berowan tribes. So in the late 70s, they started just exploring that area and discovered a huge network of 100 kilometres long of these limestone caves that gradually were explored by the National Geographic Society with the locals and they've opened up a certain number of caves which are absolutely amazing and one of them is big enough to fit some 20 or 30 Boeing airlines. Uh, others like the Clearwater just go forever and since I, my last visit they had developed a fantastic four-kilometre trail which weaves its way all through the depths of the cave alongside a riverbed and it's a fantastic it doesn't take the, the entirely the effort away you still have to co- soar up and down the edges comb the lengths of this cave and the heights of this cave but it definitely makes the going a lot easier than for the first explorers so well you're a brave person to take on such a scary challenge and in your article you leave us with a lesson a lesson that you learnt, and what was that Tamara? I learned that to absolutely ignore all of the fear-mongering that that Singaporean lady had done. She had no idea she was going by YouTube. And just get out there, go out and find for yourself and then marvel at the sense of achievement that comes with such an accomplishment because it was a little bit against the odds. And I think that intensifies that feeling of not pride so much, although there was perhaps a little bit of that creeping in, but definitely given the fact that I was so close, stupidly, to throwing in the towel, I was almost crying at the thought of imagine if I'd done that. And so there was an incredible sense of joy and elation that literally go with being getting yourself to such heights. And... She's a photographer, so some great pics in Tamara's story of the pinnacles and the caves in show notes, of course. Fantastic. Uh, Look, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while now, you may have recognised Tom from an earlier episode. We chatted to him in our episode on the Philippines, uh, where fellow blogger JB from Will Fly for Food described one of the local delicacies. The most notorious street food we have is uh, the embryos, the palut. Have you heard of that? It's no, the, uh, but I'm already gagging. Go on. <laughs> yeah, it's, still, it's the kind of stuff that you see on Fear Factor. The duck embryos, um, not everyone can eat it, not even Filipinos. So, you know, it's... Is it crunchy? Yeah. Or? It's actually, it's not crunchy. Um, it's soft. Uh, you can you can see the chick, the duckling, and it's formed. There are no feathers, though, or anything like that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, once you put it in your mouth, it's soft, and it's, it's actually quite good. Still not convinced. <laughs> no. But if you have eaten balut or any other strange street foods on your travels, then please let us know. Email us at podcast at worldnomads.com. A link to that app on the Philippines in show notes, Phil. You can download the episodes from iTunes or the Google Podcast app or ask Alexa or Google Home to play the World Nomads podcast. Uh, and apparently you can ask Siri ask to play her. it. Let's do it. Okay. Hey, Siri, play the World Nomads podcast. Is the The World Nomads podcast. 
Parts of the World, exhausted just saying that. Oh, there From we Ushuaia, are. Argentina awesome. to Barrow in Alaska. Oh, if she go. completes it, Phil, she'll away. become the first woman to have done Thank it. Thank you, Siri. Siri. There's nothing that, she's such a good girl, isn't she? Oh, I love Siri. <laughs> There's a movie about that. Oh. Next week, we look at festivals around the world. Bye. Bye. The World Nomads Podcast. Explore your boundaries.